Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Turn to Daniel chapter 2. This morning it's verse 17 through 35. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He moves kings and sets up king, removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. And the king said to Daniel, whose name was Belt Shazar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man, Enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head to you of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. Not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of gold, 
its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, and all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Sorry for that reading. I was having trouble seeing So now we're right in the middle of the chapter. This is a long chapter, by the way, 49 verses. Really a lot of drama here in a a good sense. I don't mean that in a negative sense. It's very dramatic. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. He can't remember what it was. He kind of has an idea what it was, but he can't remember the details. And he calls in the wise men to come and tell him not just the interpretation. He wants them to tell him what the dream was. Now, who can do that? This was an impossibility, but he was testing his wise men. Are they a bunch of frauds? Do they really know hidden and secret things? Because this is what they claim when they were enchanters, astrologers, magicians, and all the other groups of these different wise men. Basically, they all dabbled in the occult. And there are some things one can know from the world of darkness, but they can't tell you what a dream is. The devil does not have knowledge of that. So Nebuchadnezzar threatens to kill them all unless they can tell him what his dream was and what it meant. I mean, this was really sort of an outrageous expectation on his part, but it agrees with the character of the Ancient Near Eastern kings, they were like this. They made unreasonable demands and were very arbitrary and capricious. So Daniel intervenes. And he stops this and says, let me talk to the king for a moment. And he's brought before Nebuchadnezzar. He tells Nebuchadnezzar, give me a little time and I will tell you your dream." So that's where we left off last week. Now, what does Daniel do? So first of all, in verses 17 and 19, he turns to God in prayer for the revelation of the dream. He goes back to his house, wherever that was, apparently in the, perhaps in the temple complex there where the rest of the wise men were staying. And he talks to his three friends, and he makes known to them this matter, it says. So what did he tell them? They they were ignorant. They didn't know what was going on. So Daniel brings them up to date, tells them about that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had this dream. This is his decree. We're all going to be dead unless we can tell him what it means. The wise men failed to tell him. So he's going over the whole thing with them in order to show His friends, they're in a crisis. This is a matter of life and death. And this was to motivate them to really go to prayer and be earnest in seeking the Lord's face. Notice it says, 
verse 18. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven. I love that. I love the fact that we come across these titles for the true God in the book of Daniel. Very appropriate title for him in a culture and in a country that worshiped the heavens. This is the Babylonian religion is involved in the idea of the heavens. This is what they worshiped. And but Yahweh is the God of heaven. He's the creator of the heavens. He's, he, his throne is in heaven and he's over us. He looks down upon us. And yet we have access to him in prayer. He can be approached. Oh, you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. I, uh, Psalm 65 and verse 2. So they go to him in prayer and they want to know this mystery. Now we know what, the, what he means by a mystery. This is a total enigma to men. They don't, this is a very secretive thing that Nebuchadnezzar wants them to tell. It's impossible for man to penetrate the, the darkness, the veil that is over this, and to tell them what is there. The word mystery, I underlined it all, the number of uses in this chapter, it occurs eight times, and the word revealed occurs seven times. So this is the emphasis here, is the, the mystery that needs to be revealed, this secret that is beyond human discovery. They are praying that God will uncover it and make it known. Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel. Now, we don't know how long they had to spend in prayer, but God answered. And notice he answered not in giving Daniel the dream. He didn't dream it. He had a vision. A vision and a dream are not the same thing in the Bible. Now, basically, it's the difference between being awake and being asleep and coming to a knowledge of something. So Daniel, at night, sees this. It's something that passes before his eyes, and he knows what it is. He knows God answered. He gave him the understanding of it. It was disclosed to him. Now, in verses 20 to 23, Daniel just spontaneously worships in response. He knows he has the answer for Nebuchadnezzar, and he blesses God. You know what it means to bless God? Daniel blessed the God of heaven, and he answered, said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. So, we, we can bless the Lord like in the song that we just sang, by acknowledging his mercies to us, by telling back to him what good things he's done on our behalf, just making that acknowledgement, honoring him for it, praising him, worshiping him. This is, this, God is blessed by that. We can't give him anything to bless him in that sense other than worship and praise and thanksgiving. And if we have the grace of God, if we're saved people, then gratitude needs to be a part of that. These two go together, grace and gratitude. And he's worshiping here. So blessed be the name of God. Now the name of God stands really for 
you know, who he is. The totality of God's being is wrapped up and embodied by his name. So when he says, blessed be God forever and ever, everything about God is worthy of worship for all eternity. So I would kind of read that. Everything about him, his justice as well as his mercy, God in the totality of who he is, is worthy of eternal praise. And then Daniel focuses particularly on two aspects of God's nature. To whom belongs wisdom and might. Now think with me for a moment. The two, the tr- the two attributes of God that are particularly present in God's creation of the world and how he governs the world are, are these two. Now I'm sure we could say, make a case for many of God's attributes of his character, but especially wisdom and might. And here in this, this answer to prayer, Daniel focuses on these two too. The wisdom of God, God's foresight, his design, his plan is implied by his wisdom, and his might is his almighty power to execute that design, execute that plan, bring it to fulfillment. And he does that. God's almighty power with whom all things are not only possible, but equally easy, said an old commentator. I like that statement. Now he's going to tell us what God does in his wisdom and his might. He changes times and seasons. Times and seasons are two different things. It's used in Ecclesiastes 3, the very opening to everything, to every purpose under heaven. There is a season and a time, a time to be born, a time to die, and so on. You know the passage. But he uses those two words, times and seasons. They're, they're not the same. They're different. Uh, it's used in the New Testament when the apostles said to Jesus, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Acts 1. And Jesus says, not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, or he fixes by his own authority. What are the times and the seasons? Well, times is referring to the measurement of time. How we normally think of time, that it's the sequence of moments. Seasons is talking about the eras the periods that occur within the realm of time. And he says that God changes those. God changes the times and the seasons. In other words, God has complete control over time and over periods within that time frame. Now, the most obvious one is the changing of the seasons of the year. Yeah, it changes the seasons. We're coming out of winter soon here, and then it's going to be spring. This, is, this was established in Genesis 1 when God created the sun and the moon and the stars. It says he did this for signs, for seasons, 
and for the measurement of days and years. That, there's your actual measurement of time. So even from the very beginning of creation, the seasons and the times are part of the Creator's genius and how He made the world. But here Daniel is saying that God changes it. In other words, it's in His control. The rhythms of nature are changed by God. That is the most obvious ones, the seasons of the year. But also, he's going to say, political revolutions, the fall of kings, the removal of kings, the establishment of kings, just apply it to the presidency today. Who he puts in power, who he removes from power. This is all God's doing. These are the periods, the eras that are in his control. So Daniel is asserting here, again, the great truth that God is behind history. He's behind current times and seasons, wherever we find ourselves. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and the hidden things. Those things that we could never know apart from him. Now we make an application about that concerning the Bible itself. Because what the the doctrines that are revealed in the Bible we could not know from nature. You can't discover that God is a savior by with a telescope peering into space. I don't know that about God, that he is a saving God. I know he has great power, that he exists, he's a genius, he's very, he's amazing in what he designed in the world. But I don't know that he is one who wants to forgive us of our sins. That is special revelation. This is what he reveals in the Bible. So we need both the book of God and the book of nature, both. We need both. Daniel says he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. Yeah. David put it like this in Psalm 139 when he's talking about God's omniscience and omnipresence. Man thinks that he can get away with things if he does it in the dark. Nobody sees him. This is why a lot of crimes and sins are committed at nighttime under the cover of darkness. Stealing catalytic converters from cars. It's happening a lot where we live. But but David says in Psalm 139, both the light and the darkness is all the same to you. God is not in darkness. He knows what is in the darkness. And the light dwells with him. That's an interesting expression. It's the only place in the Bible where it's stated like that. He, God clothes himself with light, it says in Psalm 104. He dwells in light that no man can approach. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6. Psalm 36 and verse 9, In your light we see light. God is a being who's... The light dwells with him. There's no darkness at all in him. What a God. 
And then at the end there, verse 23, to you, O God of my fathers. Now he changes the, the title of God. Just talk like that. Daniel now is remembering that Yahweh is the covenant God of Israel, the God of his fathers, the God of the patriarchs. We belong to him. We are his people. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. So he's praising the Lord for all of the answer to prayer that he has granted in this crisis. And he's blessing God by just acknowledging it. That's the most we can do to bless God. But if you just think about that, if my just my simple acknowledgement, this is, this is how I apply it. When I'm, if I'm looking at his creatures in a zoo, I just want to acknowledge his creativity. This is his creature. God designed this animal and acknowledge that. But the people that are running the zoo, a lot of them, you hear them, they talk like it's wonderful. Their focus is on how wonderful the animal is, but it's very seldom you hear them acknowledge the creator who made this creature. We can just acknowledge what God has done. We'll bless him to acknowledge he's the creator of these things and praise him for it, how great he is. Now, let me go back just for a minute on my point. I skipped over something I wanted to bring out. I made a note here and forgot it. Going back to the idea that God controls time, he changes the times and the seasons. You know, there's two miracles in the Old Testament when God literally changed the clock. Do you know what they are? In one case, he caused the world to stop. He stopped time. He did that for Joshua in Joshua chapter 10, when Joshua commanded the sun to stand still. And the text goes on to say, never before has God obeyed the voice of a man. Pretty amazing. He stopped time. He stopped it. And then, Later on, in the case of Hezekiah, later in Jewish history, God caused time to reverse. The shadow on, it was something like a sundial, which was invented apparently by the Babylonians, where the sun casts a shadow on something that marked time. And Hezekiah was given a sign by God that he was going to live and not die, and the sign was going to be that God would cause the, the sundial to go back 10 degrees. This was to reverse time. It's interesting. What has to happen for either of those to happen? The earth on its axis has to stop. In Joshua's case, God stopped the earth, one spinning. It's a long day of Joshua. Extended the day way beyond a normal day so that they could fight the battle out while the sun was still shining. And then in uh, the case of Hezekiah, the earth had to reverse a little bit. 
This is amazing. This is God controls time. Now, thirdly, Daniel has good news for Nebuchadnezzar, verses 24 to 30. So he wants to make it known quickly to Arioch that he's got an answer for the king. Arioch, remember, he's the one that was sent to execute the wise men. So Daniel says, stop everything, don't kill any more of them. Bring me before Nebuchadnezzar and I'm going to tell him the interpretation. So Arioch in haste brings Daniel before the king. Notice how Arioch kind of takes a little bit of credit here for finding Daniel. It's not true. I found among the exiles of Judah, so Arioch's taking some credit here for bringing Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar. He leaves out the fact that Daniel stepped in. He took the initiative to do something about it. But is Daniel annoyed? Does he feel slighted by Arioch? No, there's no indication he was annoyed by this. So he comes before Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar asks this question. Is he asking this because he doubts it or because... It's amazing to him. He's surprised that he has knowledge of his, of his dream. We don't really know. Are you, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? So right off, Daniel wants to turn the king's attention away from men to the God in heaven. He answers by telling him, you know, no wise man was able to give you the interpretation. (laughs) So he's kind of in a way, think of it like this, he's exonerating the wise men here by saying that. He's, He's sort of telling Nebuchadnezzar that, you know, you made an unreasonable demand of them. They they did there was no way they were going to be able to tell you what your dream was. So he's Daniel's really a good guy here toward the wise men. They're not going to be so nice to him over in chapter 6. But here he steps in for them, exonerates them. No man can tell, no astrologer be able to tell the king this mystery. But there is a God in heaven. You know, this, this, I, I think Daniel saw himself on, on a mission to Babylon. He was there to represent Yahweh and to be a witness for Yahweh in that culture that was plagued by false religion, by gross spiritual darkness. darkness. And he's there with the knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of the true God. That was his priority. Again, a reminder that God is in heaven. He's he's transcendent. Yet he comes and he interacts with us. He made known the dream. So Daniel at this point isn't saying anything about himself. He will eventually at the end, toward the end of this section. But right at this point, he wants Nebuchadnezzar to think about the God in heaven. Now we're going to come to a very important section here. 
Notice what he says. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. This is very important. Literally, here, the Aramaic reads, what will be in after days. After days. Here it says, the latter days. This, this phrase denotes a closing era or a period in the future. It's indicative of a, a decisive change in the future. Now here I, I'm quoting pretty much from my commentaries. I can't remember who it was that gave me this. But this is a very important point to understanding what Daniel is going to tell him. In this context, it's not referring to the end of the world. It's not referring to the end of time. It's referring to the fact that there's going to be a great change, a period, an era in the future... After days, or in the latter days. So we have these days that merge into a period of time called the latter days. And this denotes this era, this new era, or period of time. Now in the Dead Sea Scrolls, this Phraseology, latter days, is used in their writings, the Essenes, that were this very strict religious sect of Judaism that lived out in the wilderness where they were found. And it had reference to the Messianic Age. This is how they viewed it. The latter days was referring to the Messianic Age. Not the end of the world, but the Messianic Age. Now, what is, it, what is this period called in the New Testament? The New Testament agrees with this. It's called the last days. Now, most people think whenever it's talking about the last days, it's talking about that period of time right before Jesus comes, in the last days. But you know something? That's not the New Testament interpretation of it. The New Testament interpretation of the last days begins with the pouring out of the Spirit on Pentecost. Amen. Peter quoted from Joel chapter 2 in his sermon, a great Pentecostal sermon, where he said, In the last days, I, God, Yahweh, will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Well, that didn't happen at the, toward the end of the world. That happened with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because he's the one who sent forth his spirit. This is the work of Jesus, the pouring out of the spirit. Paul says in the last days, perilous times will come. Men shall be lovers of their own selves and so on. Now that represents the whole period since Christ. This has been true of human nature. Now, I might say this is going to escalate. It's going to get worse and worse as we draw near the end. I think you can make that case from the teaching of Jesus when he compares all the troubles in the world to the birth pangs, to the 
labor of a woman who's about to give birth. The birth pangs become more frequent and more intense as the birth approaches. So are these things that Jesus outlines that are going to represent the time period leading up to his second coming, they will become more frequent, more intense, greater up until the end. But the whole period of this, that we, you and I are living in the last days. We are in the latter times in Daniel's language. Now it's interesting that this dream of Nebuchadnezzar reveals that something amazing occurred in this time frame. Something so decisive and radical and powerful and world-changing that God revealed it to Nebuchadnezzar. And he wanted God's people to know it, to understand it. This is why we're not left to speculate as to the meaning. We have the interpretation right here in Daniel 2. Then he goes on and says, follow along with me now. He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. So this is, this is what he's saying. So Nebuchadnezzar was in bed and he was pondering. Remember, he hasn't been a king for very long. He came to power in 605. This is taking place within a few years of him coming to power. So he was thinking most likely about his own kingdom. How long am I going to be a king for? Wondering if his kingdom is going to last. Or will they be conquered by another people? So he was reflecting in bed upon his kingdom. Wondering to himself, what will be after this? Then Daniel says, And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. So he's saying, this dream that God gave you, he's answering your thoughts. He's letting you know what is to be in the future. As he was thinking about himself and his kingdom. See, this, this, is, this is why it's important to study the text. It puts these things together so we can make sense of it. But as for me, now Daniel talks about himself for a moment. Notice, he, he, doesn't, take, he doesn't take credit like there's something great about himself, that he had this supernatural understanding in himself. No, he gives God all the credit for it. But as for me, this, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than, any, than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So this was given to Daniel so that Nebuchadnezzar would know. This is an answer to Nebuchadnezzar. An answer to his thoughts, his questions that he had as he lay pondering his future in bed that night. Now, finally, in verses 31 to 35, 
Daniel gives a detailed account of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This must have just... Think of what the king thought as he was listening to this. Because as he was hearing Daniel explain it to him, it just all came to him. Yes, this is exactly my dream. This, is, this was it. The details of it. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image or a great statue. This is not image in the sense of an idol. Nebuchadnezzar did not see a deity. He didn't see an idol. He saw a great colossal image of a man, a human form. This is, he saw a statue that was big, real big. It was dazzling in brightness and it was frightening to him. This is what all that Daniel tells him. Now he starts to describe it from head to toe. The head of the image was of fine gold. Then, after the head of gold, its chest and arms were of silver. Now what you note here is that the metals are changing, obviously. It, the thighs are of bronze. And then legs of iron. So what, what is happening here? The value of the metal is decreasing as it works its way down, obviously. But the strength and the hardness of the metal is increasing as it goes down. Gold is very soft. Gold is the only metal that you can, under some pressure, I don't know how much pressure it takes, but it will fuse by itself if it's put together, two pieces of gold. It's amazing. What you can do with gold. Silver is a lot harder than gold. A lot less in value. And so on. Bronze is very hard. This is why they made their swords out of bronze. And then legs of iron. And part of the legs are the feet. Which is an amalgam of iron and clay. It's significant. To it. So you have an image that is weak in its base, fragile. Iron and clay didn't mix. But the clay, the inter- to introduce clay into the mix would weaken the iron. So what he's saying is that this thing is going to be you're going to get harder and harder until you get to the base. Then there's a there's an inherent weakness in the very thing that supports this statue. It's going to make it top heavy and easily toppled. This is what he's describing. So then when you come to the stone now that is cut By no human hand, cutting a stone is the idea of it's being quarried from some source. But notice, no human hand, that's making it clear, man is not involved in this stone. It's of divine origin. And this stone then hits the image where it's the weakest, in the feet. 
and that topples it. Actually, as he goes on to describe it, the image is obliterated. It's broken into a million pieces, and the wind, as it were, just like the wind blows the chaff away from the wheat when they thresh the, the, the wheat, throwing it up in the air, and the, the wind carries the chaff away, and the, the good part of the wheat falls to the ground. This thing is just blown away. It's gone. It's done for. It is no more. Don't you wish we were going to go into the meaning of it right now? We'll save that for next week. But right now, we just want to see that Daniel recounts the dream in detail. You don't miss any of the details. And then the amazing thing is, the stone that struck the image, what happens to it? It becomes a great mountain that fills the earth. Now we know what that means. I'll just say it. That's the kingdom of God. The image represents the kingdoms of this world. And we'll go into it next, next week, God willing, in detail as the explanation is given to it. Nebuchadnezzar, he wants to know what it means now. I'm sure he probably was afraid that he was the, the whole image represented him. And if the stone was striking him and meant the destruction of his kingdom, no wonder he was alarmed and troubled by the little bit of memory he had of this. So now I'm drawing to a close very quickly. Did the Lord Jesus Christ have this in mind when he said in Luke 20 and verse 18, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Of course, he's the stone. It's in the context of the the stone that the builders rejected became the head cornerstone. That's the verse he referred to just previous to saying this. I can't help but think that there's some connection in that, that Jesus from the, the understanding of Daniel, that he, he, he stated it like that. So this is, this is exciting biblical truth that we're looking at here that pertains to our world, actually, because we're living during the time that the stone fills the earth and becomes a great mountain. I'll just throw that out to you. We're living in that period this is what he's revealing in the after days, this new era, this new period that is to occur in the future. This is where we are in history. May the Lord bless his word today to us. Amen. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.